Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here today with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Um, and you're going to come out and see me soon. Yes, it's the Yale commencement on Monday, and uh, I'm going to uh, put on the robes and march, uh, as uh, Akil is supposed to, but may not. Um, and uh, then maybe we'll record another episode. So we've been uh, really happy with the response of the audience to our recent episodes in terms of the viewership, and we've noted, noted that people have tuned in for the first time and have stayed, so we're happy about that, and welcome to uh, new, new listeners this week. I do want to... And one, one in particular that we're going to, whose work we're going to talk about, I think, uh, later today, uh, if possible, um, my, my dear friend Chip Lupu, uh, uh, retired law professor um, in Washington, D.C., um, formerly of uh, uh, B- Boston University uh, Law School, where he uh, has appointments chair. He, he offered me, uh, I think, my first job in the business way back when, and then he moved on to GW Law School, George Washington Law School, and he's recently um, started listening to our podcast, um, Andy, and uh, I, actually he had a very interesting piece in Slate on um, the Dobbs case, and, uh, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that and many other things about Dobbs today. Yes, and uh, just beforehand, before we get into it, just want to say to our audience that we, we're a community of sorts in the sense that people provide us with their feedback in many ways. We've had uh, emails sent to Akil and to me, and we have had over the months um, the facility for posting questions on the website. In fact, we had uh, an episode where we dealt with those questions exclusively, and then other times we've brought up questions here or there. So anyway, uh, the that technical aspect of the website has been down for a couple of weeks. People haven't been able to post questions on the website. We're working on restoring that. But in the meantime, uh, audience, if you do want to pose a question, you can send an email to andy at akilamar.com, and I'll get it, and then we'll, I can't guarantee you we'll answer it right away, but we'll have it, and we do read all the questions, and we uh, will have question episodes uh, eventually, and then sometimes we'll get a question that's really timely, uh, and of course, the best question has been, why, aren't, why don't we have mugs and t-shirts, uh, <laughs> for America's Constitution, and I uh, have to say we'll, we'll consider that if there's enough demand. Um, but anyway, uh, back to the, uh, to the less tangible aspects of, of America's Constitution. Um, so again, andy at akilamar.com, and I'll get that, and we'll, that's a way to post your questions until we get that facility restored on the website. And thank you for your, for your questions, audience. Okay. So last week, we kind of figured, finished our discussion of the various decisions that people have thought were in danger, possibly, as a result of the Dobbs opinion, if indeed it turns out to be the draft opinion that uh, leaked, which purports to be from justice, written by Justice Alito. Um, but now we want to get into a discussion that assumes that the decision is not necessarily written in stone, um, that there might yet be room for negotiation. There might yet be room to turn the tables. Um, Akhil, what makes you think that such a thing might be possible? Uh, Because this sort of thing has happened before. Right now, here's what we know. It's been confirmed that 
uh, Justice Alito is the author of um, a draft uh, uh, that aspires to be a majority opinion in the court. Uh, we know that for sure. The court has really confirmed that officially. We further know that, according to reports, um, at that there was a moment, and so far as we know, that there may still it may still be true that the, um, uh, there are four additional justices who are apparently on board. Um, in order of seniority, with this uh, Alito uh, would be draft opinion, uh, majority opinion. They are, in order of seniority, other than Justice Alito himself, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Now that adds up to five, and the game is counting to five out of nine. Okay. The question is, is it possible to imagine a different coalition emerging, peeling off one or more of those five and creating a different majority opinion, a majority opinion that in this alternative universe um, would span the spectrum a little bit more because it would take one of the, at least one of the current five, let's call them the conservatives, um, and uh, get the, the liberal wing, several members, all, maybe all the members of the liberal wing, uh, to join. So is that possible um, for um, a, a different coalition to emerge and, as it were, steal the majority opinion away from Alito. And I put steal in quotation marks because this is much more like stealing second base, which is legal in baseball, than it is like stealing an election, which is not proper. Um, and Or um, saying that the Garland seat was stolen, which I do not believe. And I think that rhetoric of stealing um, is very unfortunate on both the left and the right um, in other domains. So, so if an election really were stolen, well, American patriots should be taking to the streets and maybe even trying to storm the Capitol or something. If 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 our election laws are just being uh, uh, trampled and and someone who actually legitimately won is being passed over for someone who actually really did lose, if that really were true, if this really were stealing, oh well, that 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 should be the stuff or could be the stuff of of violent. Um, insurrection, um, uh, but you see, the election wasn't stolen, okay? Um, and Donald Trump was, and his allies are wrong. We're wrong and are wrong to use that kind of rhetoric. On the left, I find it unfortunate that um, all sorts of my friends, including Jesse Wegman, who's been on this podcast as our guest, I, I think in two different episodes, in fact, has um, in the New York Times talked about. Um, uh, the Garland seat as if it were stolen because it's not because um, the rules of the game are pretty clear that you don't get a court seat unless basically both the president and the Senate agree. And, they, and the Senate doesn't have to say yes, doesn't even have to hold the hearing. Um, it might be not very nice to um, not hold a hearing, but that's not stolen. Um, uh, the, the, the seat wasn't ever Obama's and Obama's alone or Garland's and Garland's alone to... To occupy, but here we're talking about. Um, so I don't like the language of stealing there, and I'm, we're using the language. I'm using the language of stealing here, but I'm using it in quotation marks, as in stealing second base. The I thought just, is, yeah, I just um, think that, that we that we should uh, while we're doing that. Uh, I don't want to get into you know I don't want to sidetrack um, what we're what we're talking about here by having people say that we're 
setting up a false equivalency between Donald Trump's stop the steal and people on the left saying the, the seat point. was stolen. Because in one it's case, a, it's, it, an, it, it's it, an out and out lie. In the other case, it's a mischaracterization. Okay. So. Um, um, but it, uh, the reason I really hate the language that the Garland seat was stolen is if people come to believe that, then then they think all sorts of extreme measures on the left are warranted, like court packing, delegitimizing the court, going after individual justices who are the, the product of, a, of an illegitimate system, a, a stolen system of some sort. So, so this language is very, very dangerous um, unless you use it with a certain kind of quotation marks in a certain kind of way. So, but I'm using it um, because it's, it's sometimes actually called like stealing the opinion. Um, but again, it's like stealing second base. I, I, I'm very quick to add precisely so that, that people don't think this is improper because the opinion isn't yet Alito's. Um, that, that's what's still um, to, um, being worked out. And, and he could still sort of lose it the way Andy will remind us that I can't remember which team it was lost against the Mets um, when the Mets were down um, in the ninth inning and they scored five runs or something with two outs in the ninth or something like that. Right. Uh, they've um, had they've had two such games, one against okay, the Cardinals. Okay, I, 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 I knew this was a mistake. So the analogy is um, we're pretty late in the game, and it seems like um, uh, the Alito team, team Alito, is winning at least five four. That's what it seems like. But um, until the decision is actually handed down, we don't know what the final score will be. And the question is whether those four can somehow change the score in some way. Okay, so in the past, you know, we've, we've, we know of cases where it looked it was like it was going to go one way. Oh, or yeah, let me way. tell you what those cases are, because I said it's happened before. The most famous episodes in which it happened are two, and they loom very large and especially in the imaginations, the imaginaries of conservative justices today. And this may be part of the backstory of all the leaking. And it's possible there have been multiple leakers and multiple leakies. Um, so in, in, in recent weeks. So the backstory, and I'm implicated in um, one of these, is not, twofold. Not you know, in terms of any unethical behavior. No. Um, I, I, um, not, you're not uh, a leaker. But, <laughs> well, yeah, implicated is also a dangerous word. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm involved. Um, okay. But not in the leak. In, ni- in 1992, the question was um, whether Roe versus Wade was going to be guillotined, overruled, in a case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And... Um, after the oral argument, it appeared that the conservative coalition led by then Chief Justice William Rehnquist was all set to overrule Roe. He was in the Alito position. He assigned after the oral argument, the justices took a tentative vote, and there were five votes to overrule Roe versus Wade. Chief Justice Rehnquist assigned the opinion to himself, and in the middle of that process... Anthony Kennedy, among others, changed his mind. We now know because the Blackman papers were made public um, after Justice Blackman's death that he sent Justice Blackman, the author of Roe versus Wade, who really strongly believes that in, 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 in Roe, uh, Justice Kennedy sends 
Justice Blackman um, a personal note saying, um, we need to talk, you and I, as soon as possible. I have some news. Um, some, there's some de- recent developments in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, case on, on my side, That some recent developments that I believe you will um, c- consider um, welcome. Kennedy was telling Justice Blackman that he, Kennedy, was in the process of flipping, defecting, uh, moving over to the, uh, a position of reaffirming Roe, at least in certain respects, in the coalition with Justices uh, Saturday O'Connor and David Souter, all three Republican appointees, mind you, okay? Um, because the, the conservatives thought, okay, we finally have a Republican majority to overrule Roe, and Kennedy had voted for that um, at the oral ar- um, after oral argument. Rehnquist had assigned the majority opinion to him himself, and he thought he had Kennedy, and with Kennedy he had five, and that was going to be the majority opinion. It didn't happen that way. Kennedy flipped. He joined a coalition with O'Connor and Souter to create a middle uh, position uh, that would say row, 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 press and press and press, and even as it cut back on row in various ways and actually overruled some other abortion precedents that, that went even further than row. So it said press and press and press and row, 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 even as it cut back on all this, but it did not guillotine row. And Rehnquist's um, hoped-for majority opinion ends up being a dissent, okay? Because he loses Kennedy's vote. That was the swing vote. And here's what our audience should know. That... Uh, and Kennedy um, had been sort of already working on something like this at a certain point with Justices um, Souter and, and O'Connor. But at a certain point, he reaches out to the liberals and says, uh, basically lets them know, reaches out to Blackman, that this is in the works. And, and, and he wants them to sort of join his, his middle position so that it could be um, um, a broad coalition. They... Uh, Blackman reaches back, but only so much. So it turns out that they're kind of, you know, three um, wings of the court. Now, when does that memo uh, get sent to that letter from Kennedy to Blackman that year? May 15th, kind of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty late in the game. Um, but the the moderates and the liberals, you know, stole it, so to speak, away from the hardcore conservatives. So, and the conservatives know that. Um, they know that story, and that may be why the initial leak to the Wall Street Journal um, before Politico's leak suggested that, oh, maybe someone today is going wobbly. Maybe Kennedy's own law clerk, former law clerk, Brett Kavanaugh, is going wobbly the way Kennedy went wobbly in 1992. That's the first story, that it, it, this has happened before. Second story, that this has happened before, that's the one where I'm arguably part of the that the, the story, the first Obamacare case, the Sebelius case, is it's also a presidential election year. 1992 was a presidential election year. Um, so was 2012. Uh, Barack Obama is up for re-election, and his signature legislative achievement, Obamacare, is before the court, and um, it's been targeted by conservatives on a claim that somehow the individual mandate is unconstitutional and Congress doesn't have power to, to pass Obamacare. It's not part of the enumerated powers. I, as a scholar, think this is preposterous, and I write um, about this. I help, at one point, Acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, of course, my, my dear friend, 
um, and student who's been on the, the podcast. I, I help him uh, prepare the government's argument that Obamacare is perfectly constitutional. Neil um, is the, the government's lawyer of record um, when these issues are litigated in the lower courts, but by the time he gets to the Supreme Court, Neil is no longer the Solicitor General. Um, Don Verrilli has the position. And after oral argument, there are five votes, basically, to invalidate Obamacare. And the Chief Justice, who's now not William Rehnquist, but John Roberts, assigns the opinion to himself, as uh, Rehnquist had back in um, Casey, um, and Roberts had clerked for William Rehnquist, the, um, the man whom he's succeeding, j- just as Kavanaugh clerked for Kennedy, the man whom he is succeeding. Um, and Roberts starts to write the opinion and changes his mind. And he's the swing vote, so when he changes his mind, he steals it away from himself, so to speak. Um, and, and instead of joining with the conservatives in invalidating um, Obamacare, he joins with the liberals in upholding it in the main. Now, how is that a story remotely about yours truly? He changes his mind in part by coming to embrace a theory that Obamacare is a perfectly valid congressional exercise of its um, taxation authority. And this was always um, my theory um, uh, that, that, that my best theory, my best theory, I told Neil a long time uh, earlier, was um, uh, to focus on John Roberts, emphasize the tax idea, along with a technical legal doctrine called Ashwander, theory of constitutional avoidance, that, that um, if a law can be read two different ways, and one way up, ends up making the law constitutional, you've got to read it that way as a matter of kind of judicial deference to Congress and avoidance of um, con- hard constitutional questions and especially constitutional invalidity. That idea is associated with Louis Brandeis, who was uh, one of whose famous law clerks was Henry Friendly, one of whose famous law clerks was John Roberts. John Roberts clerked for both Henry Friendly and for William Rehnquist. And um, I thought Roberts would understand the tax theory um, in part because he had, had, had himself, at, um, as a younger lawyer, worked for the, the, the government, the federal government, and, and tax, the taxing power is very important if you're trying to defend government policy, and I thought he would understand that from his early experiences as a government lawyer. I thought he believed in a constitutional avoidance because he is very proud to be a Henry Friendly clerk, was very proud to be a Brandeis clerk. And this is one of Brandeis's bigger ideas, constitutional avoidance. And I'm trying to understand who John Roberts is and how he thinks. He thinks in Brandeisian terms. Um, he's, um, he understands the taxpayer. So I always thought, and I told Neil, that your best argument, you have four votes from the liberals no matter what, um, the liberal coalition, um, you, you know, you, you've, you've got the votes of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. You only need the fifth. Um, you could stand, you know, the Solicitor General could stand on their head and, and recite Mary Had a Little Lamb at oral argument. You've got those four. They're going to uphold Obamacare. You need one more vote um, from any of the five. The, the other side uh, has to draw to an inside straight. So there are six different arguments to uphold Obamacare, five justices, any one of whom will do the trick, 30 different permutations. Um, But my advice to Neil was that the single best um, tactic um, was to focus on John 
Roberts on uh, the tax theory plus Ashwander. Okay, so this is like Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with a gun or something like that. But Neil was no longer Solicitor General um, when the um, case was argued, and the tax theory wasn't front and center in Solicitor General Verrilli's oral argument and materials. Robert's initial instinct was to invalidate Obamacare. When he starts writing, he he changes his mind. Now, what I don't know is exactly how and why it's possible that he changes his mind because as he does more research, he finds some earlier briefs that Neil had written um, uh, that emphasized tax theory plus Ashwander. It's also possible that the clerk brought to his attention a slate piece that I wrote um, right after oral argument, which went disastrously for the government, teeing up the tax theory um, and actually putting it forth as a compromised position, really, that could could unite different wings of the court. We don't know exactly what caused him to change his mind, although I did intervene um, in the middle of um, the... uh, litigation process after oral argument i i wrote this piece as in effect an an open letter to the justices as a kind of um, open amicus brief after oral argument which was a little bit weird but but not unethical it was just a piece in um uh, available uh, for public scrutiny anyway roberts changes his mind um and today's conservatives you see remember Sibelius, where Robert stole the opinion from himself, so to speak, and, uh, and, and went with the liberals, where Wob- Roberts went wobbly. And they remember uh, the Casey decision when Kennedy went wobbly. Um, and it's possible that um, with those in mind, those uh, experiences in mind, that there was a leak to the Wall Street Journal before the, the uh, leak of the draft itself, suggesting, oh, maybe... The, the centrists on the court are going wobbly again. Maybe Roberts himself is trying to to, to, to pull um, another Sibelius out of the hat. One other case that Chip Lupu, whom I mentioned earlier, um, has brought to um, our attention and the attention of, of everyone in, in America in a thoughtful piece in Slate, um, uh, reminds us that in a, a recent case argued um, by none other than Neil Katyal, a case um, uh, called Fulton, involving um, religious accommodations um, and the claims of religious discrimination of various sorts, and gay rights in Philadelphia involving gay couples seeking to adopt uh, individuals. Um, uh, in this case called Fulton, it appears as if Alito was going to write a certain kind of very, very... Um, uh, conservative opinion on rights of religious accommodation, and Roberts ends up stealing the court from him um, and creating a a broader coalition um, to um, uphold the um, religious rights um, argument to rule against the claims of LGBT folks seeking equality in the adoption process, non-discrimination in the adoption process, and the Alito initial, you know, would-be-hoped-for majority ends up becoming a dissent. And that's when you read the opinion, his, his dissent with care, it looks as if it maybe had initially been crafted as a, as a majority opinion. There's certain little telltale signs. And um, Chip uh, has a piece in Slate saying, hmm, is it possible that Roberts could um, 
example, and he's and Chip is a great scholar of um, religion. Um, is it possible that um, Roberts could pull that off again? So, so the answer to your question, why do I think this could happen, is because it's happened before. It definitely happened in Casey. We we know that because we we have all sorts of papers uh, uh, from Justice Blackman and others. It happened in Sibelius. Uh, we know that in part because the reporting of Joan Biskupic um, after the fact, who, who um, uh, reveals that, that uh, Roberts flipped in the middle of the process. And, and there are certain, again, telltale signs when you look at the, um, the um, ultimate dissenting opinions, which seem as if they were originally crafted to some extent um, as majority opinions. Uh, it's a little complicated. It may even have been that this dissent used some portions of, of Robert's initial um, majority opinion, um, invalidating it and, 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 and quoting his own language back at him in certain respects. We'll know much more in, in, in 20 or 30 years when, when the papers become public. But it happened in Casey. It happened in Sibelius. And there's some reason to think it may have well have happened in um, Fulton as well. One other reason in Fulton is you can sometimes make certain deductions about who was initially assigned to write the would-be majority opinion based on the assignment patterns um, uh, month by month after oral argument. And people like Tommy Goldstein and Linda Greenhouse are often able to kind of figure out who initially was assigned what um, because the justices every um, uh, month try to kind of even out the workload. And if Everyone except Alito, for example, was assigned a majority opinion for month X. You, um, and, there's, and there's one decision that's yet to come down. A natural inference is, oh, that's going to be an Alito opinion. Um, because, they, again, they try to even out the workload. And if it's not an Alito opinion, but it is an Alito dissent, you think, oh, maybe he was assigned the majority opinion and he didn't hold it, especially if the person who ends up writing the opinion already had an assignment for that month. So when one person ends up with two and... Uh, another justice ends up with zero, sometimes you can say, ah, well, the person who ended up with zero was originally assigned a majority and lost it. It got stolen by the person who ended up with two. I just wonder if the uh, the steam that seemed to be coming out of Justice Alito's ears in the dissent in uh, Fulton has something to do with it uh, as well. But, uh, you know, he, he didn't, re- didn't read like a man that was too happy writing that opinion. Actually, we've been calling Justice Alito's opinion a dissent, but Technically, it's a concurrence in the judgment, Fulton. So he reached the same result, but on a much more sweeping theory. Uh, but anyway, um, all right. So here we are with Dobbs, and we know that uh, that it, it could be that uh, you know that opinions can change, as you pointed out, because it's happened before. Um, now we don't have any particular reason to believe that it's happening here, but we. Uh, but we do know... Well, the Wall Street Journal leaked before Politico a story that, that, that Roberts was going to try maybe to do something like this and, um, and that it's possible that one of the five, I think especially Kavanaugh, um, might be wobbly. Of course, remember, they're thinking Kavanaugh-Kennedy, you see, and they're thinking Roberts-Roberts. There, there is, you know, um, and, and, and Roberts um, um, both in Sibelius and in Fulton. You see. Okay, so let's say that you are, that you're in Chief Justice Roberts' position, um, or you're one of the liberal justices. Maybe you're, you know, in Justice Kagan's position, and you would like to see an opinion other than this Alito opinion be the opinion of the court. What kind of negotiating position might you take? What do you have to offer? 
what kind of an opinion do you think might be able to buy five justices' signature to it? So I'm going to first approach this legally. What kind of legal arguments can you make? And then kind of more from a political science point of view, where might the deal um, be done? You know, how? And what do you have to give? What do you hope to get? Um, and then on the other side, what, what are they giving up and what are they getting um, if there's um, a grand a bargain, a certain a coalition that's different than the um, Alito approach. Now, okay. of course, you and I have spoken about this um, in advance of this podcast, and I, I just want to uh, create reasonable expectations on the part of the audience here. I don't think that um, we're going to be proposing something where that upholds Roe versus Wade, um, that, <laughs> that you're going to get five votes for that or something like that. Because um, legally, that's not in the cards. And I think um, from a political science point of view, that's not going to happen. So, so in, in effect, if you are in Justice Kagan's position or one of the other liberal justices, you're trying to salvage what you can um, here. And so, you know, we'll see what it is that might be salvageable and why it might matter. You might think of this as damage control. You believe in a woman's um, uh, reproductive rights. You believe in them very broadly, and you're trying to save as much as you can. You have certain jurisprudential commitments. You're trying to save as much of those as you can. And by the way, although I took a lot of hits um, on Twitter for uh, this piece that I wrote in the Wall Street Journal, you can see this actually as an effort in damage control. Um, you can, if um, you can, you can try to exaggerate just how bad a majority opinion would be, but that's a very dangerous strategy because if the majority holds, now you're on record as saying, "Oh, it doesn't just mean uh, the case at hand; it, it has implications for not just the case at hand, case A, but issues B, C, D, E, and F." Um, and you're conceding defeat logically on all those others. Um, that's it's a dangerous strategy. And it sometimes is used in dissent. Let's call that the screamy, yelly strategy. Um, um, it's very dangerous. It, you're trying to peel off when you know someone from the majority coalition by saying, "Oh, this is really dangerous. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it." But if it doesn't prevail, and you insist on publishing the screamy, yelly dissent, oh, you've just actually taken maybe a small loss and turned it into a bigger loss because um, you're saying, "Well, the logic of this is actually very expansive indeed." The uh, alternative strategy. And Justice Brennan, who was a great tactician uh, on the, the Warren Court, on occasion uh, you went screamy yelly. But much of the time, he, and I mentioned him because in the first half of his, his career, he's putting together the deals. He's the playmaking guard on, on the team, on the Warren Court team. He's, he's doing all the um, – he's moving the ball around and taking a lot of three-pointers and sinking them. And Earl Warren is the center, and Hugo Black is the power forward, but, but uh, Brennan is in on the action all the time. And he's always able to count to five. And Breyer, remember, very famously told me once that Brennan could count to five because he started with seven. Okay, but that's, you know, Brennan in the first half of his career. Second half, Earl Warren is no longer chief. Richard Nixon's president. Um, he inherits from the very beginning two slots, the chief slot, and, um, and then um, Fortas will be uh, forced off the court. And it, it becomes a conservative court, the Burger Court. And now Brennan in the second half of his career is actually playing damage control. And he's often in dissent, not always. Sometimes he's able magically to, to pluck five votes out of a hat in, in improbable uh, situations. But often in dissent, he's doing damage control. He, he's trying to prevent the loss, but when he fails, he says, okay, 
uh, we lost, but this actually isn't as bad as you might think because there's this limiting principle and that one, the other one. So it's actually a more narrow decision than um, you might at first uh, recognize, lower court judges, lawyers, um, uh, America. So we, we live to fight another day. We lost this, but it's just a battle, and, um, and all sorts of things are distinguishable from the case at hand. And, and that's kind that's of what happened act- in Fulton, right? Yes, and that's actually what I was saying for the Wall Street Journal, that even if the Alito opinion becomes a a majority opinion, it's not undermining, in my view, Griswold versus Connecticut and Eisenstadt versus Baird on contraception rights of married and unmarried persons, respectively. It's not undermining um, Loving versus Virginia on interracial marriage. It's not undermining Lawrence versus Texas on um, uh, same-sex intimacy, um, sodomy laws, uh, oral and anal sex um, prohibitions and the like. It's not doing any of those things. It may not be great on same-sex marriage, but I don't think it actually undermines it that much for reasons that I explained on the podcast and in the in the Wall Street Journal. And in those other areas, I'm claiming victory. Oh, the conservatives are actually buying into a certain logic that explains why some of those other Warren Court uh, landmark opinions um, and post-Warren Court landmark opinions were uh, on the liberal side were right. So that's actually in a kind of Brennan tradition of damage control. And so now we're imagining how might, um, let's say, Elena Kagan, Stephen Breyer, try to write something that at... at does damage control, or maybe even more than that, tries to actually achieve certain things that that, that they believe in, um, uh, in a way that's legally strong and defensible, unlike just saying row, 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 um, when row really wasn't very solid, and you're just building on sand. Unlike that, that's legally solid, and that um, is a pol- uh, imaginable given the the macro and micro politics of the situation, the micro being on the court, the macro being where America is on various issues. And actually, in this opinion, potentially, they actually have less to lose uh, by doing that than than in many other opinions because much of the oral argument and the previous you know arguments centered on precedent. You know that you need to uphold this. Because of precedent, because uh, because it's, it is a precedent, it was reaffirmed at Casey. They say, um, and so the well, if they're going to lose, then it's not going to be a precedent anymore. So- press, pre- press, and press, and is a very dangerous argument. Once you've lost, okay, you're trying to get prevent five people from agreeing to overrule the precedent. But once they've agreed, and you keep saying press and press and precedent, then the day. That decision comes down, Dobbs, the day Dobbs is decided against you, if your only argument is precedent, 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 now Dobbs is a precedent, and it's a precedent against you, and you can never, you know, if you want to try to revive Roe or something, well, good luck if you're precedent, precedent, precedent. Right. If your only argument for, for reviving Roe is that it's a precedent, it's, it's not it's much of an argument precedent. when it's not Dobbs, an old, yeah, it's Dobbs a, is the precedent right. now. So, yeah. So, so, so if they know that they're going to lose on that, they have very little to lose, in fact. By, by trying to, you know, salvage something from the wreckage. So what kinds of arguments uh, might they make that, that, that they might be able to get some of the conservatives okay. to buy into? Right. And, and so what they're going, here's what they're shooting for. They're shooting for, let's imagine, an alliance. Let's imagine all three um, liberals, Kagan, um, Breyer, and Sotomayor, are trying to get have a coalition with John Roberts and, let's say, Brett Kavanaugh. That's five. You only need five. 
Chip Lupu in his piece was imagining, oh, you don't get Sotomayor on the, maybe on the hard left, so to speak, but maybe you pick up Amy Coney Barrett. I think it's going to be hard to pick up Amy, Amy Coney Barrett on some of these things here. You're better off telling uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor to, to, take, uh, to, to join this and, and try to... Uh, um, but what does it say to the country? We'll talk about this. I think it says a good thing if you could get Sotomayor and Kavanaugh for, on the same opinion. Wow. Okay. So... And, um, and the people that are um, going to do this, if it's going to be done, are the uh, center-left institutionalists. They would be Roberts, Breyer, and Kagan. So here's the first thing. Um, and Kagan, especially, I'm, I'm going to look at it from her point of view because she's going to be on the court. You know, Breyer um, is, is leaving. And she believes in women's reproductive rights. She wants to limit the damage done by upholding the Mississippi law, because she's going to be voting to uphold the Mississippi law. She's going to get um, Roberts and Kavanaugh to join her. So she's going to uphold the Mississippi law. Um, and, and that's inconsistent with Roe, because what Roe said is viability, and Mississippi is, um, permits, prohibits abortion um, after 15 weeks. And viability is 21-22, and, and Mississippi is 15-16, something like that. Okay, so... If it's just row, 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 and everything Roe said, uh, no, you you couldn't uphold the Mississippi laws. You're going to have to give up Roe. But by the way, we already did that in Casey. Roe said actually several things. One thing it said is viability, but another thing it says there's a trimester framework with sharp distinctions between the first and second trimester. Well, that was all repudiated in 1992 in Casey. They substituted a thing called undue, an undue burden test for a trimester framework, even while saying press and press and press and row, row, row. They pledged allegiance to that in Casey, but it was window dressing because they overruled two cases that day in Casey that had followed from Roe versus Wade, and they gutted part of Roe. They kept viability, but they got rid of the trimester system. Well, here we're getting rid now of the viability test, there still might be part of Roe that is preserved, and I'll come back to that. So, so uh, hold that thought about, about whether any part of Roe survives. Actually, some part might, and I'll tell you what, what part it would be. Um, uh, the specifics of the Texas law in question in Roe versus Wade. But if you want to preserve as much reproductive freedom for women as possible, here's the first key fact to say. We uphold this Mississippi law, even though it's permitting prohibitions pre-viability, back to 15, 16 weeks, here's the key limitation on what Mississippi has done that makes it okay. 15 weeks gives women enough time to figure out what to do, um, and they can always cross a state line after that and get a, um, a legal abortion in some other state, and so Mississippi doesn't try to um, pen in its women to, to, to corral them, to fence them in. Um, doesn't prevent them from going to, to New York or wherever, Chicago. And it doesn't purport to prohibit, and you can say, well, that's, you know, what, what about um, indigent women? Um, and Mississippi, and this is the key fact to mention, this is the, 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 the first point, um, uh, doesn't try to prohibit uh, charitable organizations and others from um, helping to pay for the travel expenses of indigent women to go to a place where abortion is perfectly legal under the laws of that state 
and under the laws of Mississippi. We uphold Mississippi's law precisely because it's not like Missouri trying to um, fence its women in. And that's the key fact. So it's, it's about pretty late abortions in any event, 15, 16 weeks. Um, and only 4% of abortions are occurring after that. And as long as you can cross the state line and get a GoFundMe um, uh, charitable support, um, that's what, so that's the first point to mention if you're in the damage control mode. And you, and you say um, that is a, a, a key um, fact. But remember, what you're giving is you're saying we'll, uh, we'll uphold this law, not we'll strike it down. And in the result now, you have actually nine justices upholding the thing, three for, uh, four for Alito reasons, which are, you know, states can do whatever they want, and, and a different coalition saying, well, actually, in this case, um, the key fact isn't just it's l- late, it's 15 weeks, but your, your plan B, so to speak, is your travel option. And it can be funded. So uh, my understanding as, as a layman, when I was thinking, when I heard you say this in the first place, um, what popped into my head was, well, you're, you're making a ruling about, the, about travel bans, but travel bans aren't an issue in the case. Um, so is that just, you know, dictum? Uh, or, or, you know, how, how does that have any force? One person's dictum, which is just mean uh, a way of saying you're just um, opining on stuff that's not really before the court, is another person's ratio descendi, the reason for the decision. The reason I, we're not we're not upon, uh, just bloviating about affirmative action that has nothing to do with the case, or filibuster reform that has nothing to do with the case, or the legislative veto issue, which, again, has nothing to do with the case, we're highlighting something that has everything to do with why this law in Mississippi is in actual fact not an undue burden. We're modifying maybe how we think about undue burden in various ways, maybe how we, um, but, um, but it's, in the end, not so burdensome because you, can go, um, it's, you have a lot of time to make your decision. Um, you can go to another state. Um, and Mississippi isn't prohibiting that. And if you're indigent, you can get funding, and Mississippi isn't prohibiting that. And those are key facts about what Mississippi is doing and not doing to the very um, litigants in, 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 and, and affected pe- people in question. It's not just about the abortion clinics, uh, um, but about the women who are seeking the abortions. That's, um, and if you say, well, that's dictum, lots of cases do that, starting with Marbury versus Madison, which actually decided all sorts of things were rather far afield. Marbury in the end said the court doesn't have jurisdiction, but before they say that, they're taking positions on, on 15 different issues. But, but this one actually seems to me very tight and disciplined. You're making an argument about why this law, you know, in fact passes muster because it's actually more respectful of women's rights. Even though it, it's not consistent with Roe, it's more respectful of women's rights than some people have, have thought, and it's sufficiently respective of women's rights so as to be upheld. Well, you, you know, in your language a moment ago, you used the phrase undue burden, that it's not an undue burden. Do you mean, are you using that phrase uh, deliberately as an echo of Casey? Or, They're or, allowed to, even if you thought Casey was wrong because uh, it built on Roe and Roe was wrong. You could think it's still a useful way, and you're maybe using it in a slightly different way than, than Casey did. Um, but um, 
and you don't have to use that phrase. You can use some, some other phrase. Another way of saying it is, this law is sufficiently in the mainstream of um, American unenumerated rights because although it's restrictive, it's not actually so restrictive as to make um, a Mississippi an outlier along the following, uh, it was measured by the following question, does it really sufficiently preserve the rights of uh, uh, women in Mississippi? Yes, it does. It's not, it's not extreme. And what you are saying is, oh, and this would be the dicta, but it's, it's pretty strong. You're sending a signal to lower courts and to um, uh, lower court judges and litigants and, um, and, and America. Oh, Missouri is extreme to the extent it's trying to fence in women in Missouri not letting them cross the state line. Oh, Oklahoma might be extreme, is extreme to the extent it's trying to suggest that um, it's illegal in Oklahoma to give money to women so that they can cross state lines and procure a legal abortion in New Mexico. You're saying, oh, that, that is, you know, an outlier. That, that, that is, um, that would actually violate uh, deeply rooted customs, traditions, mores, practices. For those of you who are lawyers and judges and admitted to the bar in any state, you probably know by now that this episode is accredited for a continuing legal education directly in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and by reciprocity elsewhere by going to podcast.njsba.com and entering the code I'm about to announce. The code for this episode is WIZARD. That's not case-sensitive, WIZARD. Thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. Right, so now, now I think, yeah, when I was listening to you at first, I, the obvious question was going to be, where is that in the Constitution? But now, now you're, you're bringing it back to the Constitution in, in terms of the framework for unenumerated rights yeah. that we talked about. So the right to travel... Right is you know between states is a right that uh, and, and, is a constitutional and, right. Is that correct? Yes, and there are about four or so legal underpinnings of this: a right to travel that the court has recognized in many um, earlier cases and as part of the structure of the Constitution, interstate federalism. Article four, which says. The 14th Amendment talks about privileges and immunities of citizens that your home state can't abridge. Article 4 says that people are entitled to various privileges and immunities in other states. There are two different ways of thinking about that. One is when I go to New York, New York has to actually give me sufficient respect. It can't discriminate against me. But maybe, maybe another angle is Connecticut can't prevent me from going to New York and availing myself of those special um, New York privileges or going to let's say Vegas and, and Gamble, you know, which is, let's imagine, not legal. Um, it actually is in Connecticut, but it's, it's not legal, let, let, let's imagine, in some state. Let's imagine it's not legal in Mississippi. Let's just imagine. That, and, but if Mississippi said you can't go to Vegas, would Mississippi be violating the art, Article 4 by denying you the, the, the privileges and immunities as an out-of-stater in Nevada? So there's a second. So right to travel is a structural principle, federal, horizontal federalism, Article 4 uh, privileges or immunities. A third idea would be dormant commerce clause, that, that when you're crossing state lines, states actually are limited in their ability to prevent you to cross state lines. Maybe Congress could actually 
have a different point of view, but in, in, at least in the absence of a congressional statute, federal courts often say states can't do certain things that in effect discriminate against your ability to, to interact um, with other states. Um, now, the, uh, and so you're saying that the abortion would be a commercial transaction of sorts, is that right? Well, it is, and I believe actually the, uh, commerce includes things that aren't narrowly economic, just actually just crossing state lines, um, but let's just bracket that for now. We'll come back to that maybe in a later episode. And then uh, in addition to dormant commerce clause, we could call it a thing called federal common law. Um, which is judges actually, federal judges are allowed to create certain um, uh, rules temp, um, that, that restrict states that Congress could modify. Um, I don't want to go into it in great detail, but fe- a dormant commerce clause is a kind of federal common law. The lawyers out there will know what I mean. Um, and finally, um, just um, the outlier counting approach. These are all reasons why it's really important to say this law is okay because it's not um, on this, it's not an outlier because it really doesn't restrict very much because it allows you uh, to travel. Um, but it would be different if, oh, it were three weeks rather than 15 weeks. You know, it would be different if you couldn't travel um, out of, um, it would, and they tried to fence you in. It would be uh, different if it, uh, they tried to um, prevent. Um, money from flowing in either in-state or out-of-state to help finance your lawful travel and your lawful activities in a sister state. Um, some of the arguments I just made, possibly Congress could modify in a, in a statute in 2024 if the Republicans won the trifecta, House, Senate, and the presidency. Um, others, I'm not sure. You could say, well, if Congress prohibits abortion nationwide, you know, at, at week one, now, you know, that, that Congress's law isn't an outlier. Congress's law is a, a national aberration of national norms or something. So, so some of the arguments that I made, maybe Congress could override. Um, maybe others, I'm not sure Congress can change right to travel or Article Four privileges immunities. Um, uh, they can override a thing called federal common law. They can override a case, uh, judicial rulings based on um, this uh, longstanding idea uh, called dormant commerce. Uh, doctrine. That's the first set of legal arguments. Okay, they I lead have some more questions about it, though. Um, so suppose you always do. <laughs> well, so, so in effect, they're saying that we're upholding it's this a, this law. Yeah, because, this is how hypothetical. Just reminding our right. audience, they would be saying this right. if they bought right. my kooky ideas. That well, that that you're upholding this law because, in part, because it doesn't do all of these things, and if it did any of them then it would be unconstitutional. Um, and because yeah. it doesn't do them, uh, yep. and that's one of the reasons that we're upholding it. Because it doesn't, right. Now, right. And, and it that, depends on how strongly you could say be, it, it would be or it might be. You know, this is about mm-hmm. constitutional avoidance. These mm-hmm. are all things to be negotiated. Okay. Um, now, a lot of this dep- is, counts on this outlier notion. So the fact is, well, you might say none of these states, that no state has a law that says that you can't travel to another state um, to get an abortion. So no such, no, so obviously any well, state... Missouri, that, Missouri well, is it, saying that now. So one state is saying this, okay. Um, but now we're in a Griswold situation, you know, 49 states. That, that, exactly. And uh, now we're applying the same framework that the Dobbs majority agreed to, you know, so... Except that, so. Except that the Griswold framework work took, took place... Uh, in, in an environment where there was no, where Griswold was not on the books already. So in other words, 
there was nothing from the Supreme Court saying you can't have this kind of a law. So before, you know, at this point, Roe versus Wade has been the law of the land for for 50 years, um, or at least has purported to be. And so you could say, well, of course, no state has had a travel ban because it would have been pointless because, you know, because Roe mm-hmm. would, would have, you know, invalidated So, so it. You're, you're absolutely right on uh, my unenumerated rights analysis, but it's not a unique problem for me. It's just the nature of the counting um, uh, methodology that, that, um, that Glucksberg used and, and Loving used and, and Griswold used um, and, and, and many other cases. Um, if you're invalidating something because it's a weird outlier and then a whole bunch of states say, actually, we agree with that, that, that uh, outlier state, you're going to have to rethink because there's new data. Here's what I wrote about just this um, in a book chapter that appeared um, in America's um, unwritten Constitution. It's the end of Chapter 3. This um, also appeared as an article in the Yale Law Journal. We had put it up on our show notes in a previous podcast episode, and, and Andy, maybe we can do that again uh, today uh, for, for this episode. All right. Sometimes Here's, we'll repeat these, uh, these arguments um, just because someone may not have heard that uh, previous podcast. It's, it's, it's kind of obvious that it comes up in this context. So. so so here's what I wrote. This is from page 137 of my um, a book, um, America's Unwritten Constitution, The Precedents and Principles We Live By. I'm going to read you about four paragraphs. If judges may properly strike down highly unusual state laws that intrude upon a lived experience of liberty, there's a risk that governmental innovation and experimentation might be unduly stifled. Trigger-happy judges might kill the first glimmerings of legal reform whenever new issues arise and new approaches begin to win popular support. But this risk can be minimized if judges proceed with caution and humility with close attention to the danger of what might be called judicial lock-in. The danger is that once a particular government practice has been invalidated by judges, the practice will wither away and remain forever off-limits even if a broad swath of Americans would like to see the practice revived at some later point. Such a judicially induced lock-in would turn proper unenumerated rights jurisprudence on its head. Doubtful laws should be judicially invalidated because they're unusual, not unusual simply because they've been judicially invalidated. The most democratically sensitive and sophisticated version of lived constitutionalism would avoid judicial lock-in of unenumerated rights by inviting judges to reconsider their initial invalidations when presented with updated evidence of recent legislative patterns. For example, if many states were to enact new laws similar to a law previously struck down, new laws with delayed start dates so as to allow for anticipatory judicial review, such enactments themselves would be new data to ponder. The court's death penalty jurisprudence offers a suggestive case study. In the late 1960s, actual executions dropped to zero in America. In response to this apparent national consensus, the court in 1972 seemed to hold the death penalty categorically unconstitutional. Over the next four years, both Congress and some 35 states, representing an overwhelming majority of the American population, pushed back against this ruling with a new round of death penalty statutes. In response, 
the court reconsidered its position and gave its blessing to the penalty when the underlying crime was particularly heinous and strict procedural safeguards were in place. Since then, the court has imposed additional substantive and procedural limits on capital punishment with a close eye on evolving American practice. So that's the general framework. Um, let me just briefly mention that you know um, a court, uh, uh, just depending on you know uh, how the bargain could be struck, a, a court could say as a concession, okay, we're, we're insisting that you have to have the right to travel. Um, and you have to be able to um, uh, receive uh, funding to travel if you're indigent on, with GoFundMe's and like and, and and so actually maybe 15 weeks isn't the outer limit of what a state could could pick. Maybe it could actually pick even six weeks fetal heartbeat, uh, but anything less than that, any less time than that, really would be an outlier. But even six weeks gives a lot of women the um, time enough to to decide, especially if. They are unaware at six weeks or they can't decide, especially if they still have the right in, say, Texas to go to New Mexico and to, get, get, and to be funded by GoFundMes. Now, wh- where it is you know, between 15 weeks and six weeks or something, that's going to be the subject and part of, of some bargaining and negotiation. But there's a framework, you know, once again, and the framework is in part this what's an outlier um, and, the, and, and, and that's a moving target right now, as we're beginning to see. I'm actually guessing that when Oklahoma tries to prevent everything just beginning with um, a, a post-conception, oh, that is an outlier. And, and if four weeks is, is um, too little time, um, um, even for Texas, then I think at least today you could say well, that you know, anything less than four or five weeks really would be an outlier. But, but, but I've given you a framework of analysis, and now we're you know, just talking about some of the details, and, and that's going to depend in part on um, the negotiations among the justices. Right, I think, right. I think that you know, from our point of view, this is not really a proposal we're making so much as a, as a, as a presentation of a, what— A framework. Uh, yeah. A framework. But, but uh, just getting back to the travel for a minute, there's a couple of other ways that I was thinking that— that the court might be able to think about this um, in this landscape, like you were saying, where where uh, where this preemption of laws might be viewed on the part of the uh, because of the existing road decision, um, you could look to say, well, what about before Roe was on the books? Were the were there the, these travel laws, travel preventions on the books before that? You know, and the answer is no. And another way that you could look at it is you could say, well, what about when it comes to other rights? So, for example, are there laws preventing you from buying a gun, you know, in one state and bringing where there might be more liberal gun laws and bringing it into another state? And is that constitutional? Let's let's even just uh, bringing it back is a little complicated. Let's just. A law that prevented yeah. you from gambling in Vegas, right. prevented you from from um, going um, uh, duck hunting in Idaho, or something, or getting a quick divorce um, in Nevada, or something like that. <laughs> um, so, or a quick um, marriage, for that matter. Um, 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 and some of those raise some complexities because they create relationships that then the home state mm-hmm. has to respect a divorce or a marriage. But I'm imagining, you know, some easier things can. You know, one state prevent me from gambling in Vegas mm-hmm. um, or prevent um, um, me from uh, duck hunting in Colorado. I so, don't know about that. So I think there's a number of ways that... Those that are we, untraditional, at the very least. But the bottom line there is I don't think it's unreasonable 
given all of these ways that it, that you can approach it to to paint the travel ban as an outlier. Um, okay. Okay. Um, and and we talked about and then I've given you two versions of I've given you several rationales: um, rights to travel, interstate privileges and immunities, dormant commerce clause, and outlier analysis. Those are four different. Um, lines of legal analysis that converge in a certain way, emphasizing GoFundMe's and travel and enough time to make a decision, especially if your backup is travel. And I've also said, so those, this is a legal analysis, you see, using legal frameworks. Um, and I've also said it may not be, there may be debate about whether the outer limit should be um, 16 weeks Mississippi or six weeks Texas. So they're, they're, those are they're, you know, different versions of, of uh, a similar kind of analysis. Now, here's a second distinct point. The second and it's related. These are, because I'm, I'm a law person. I'm actually trying to show you how, you know, law people could think about this. And remember, I defended Justice Alito's opinion as perfectly legally um, unobjectionable. I'm, I'm not saying unassailable. I'm saying unobjectionable. This was not illegitimate or improper or um, unprecedented or any of those things or radical. Second point. Let's talk about precedent, Justice Kagan should say. Fine, you say row, row, row is BS. And, you know, Keel thinks that. John Hardeely thinks that. Some other people think that. Fine. But if we're going to actually talk about correcting egregious precedents, with all due respect, Justice Alito, let's talk about Gadaldig, because, oh, that's a stinker. Gadaldig was a case in which the court said that laws that target pregnant persons were not um, laws that um, discriminated against women, such as to trigger even the, the ordinary scrutiny applicable to, um, to sex discrimination laws. And that's preposterous because, yes, it, these are laws that, that, that target women. They might be constitutionally might be okay, but we have to analyze them through uh, the well-developed rubric of sex discrimination jurisprudence. And it's true, Justice Alito, Gedaldig said otherwise, that laws that actually uh, no, uh, regulated pregnancy as such were not sex discrimination laws, but that's preposterous because only women can be pregnant. Yes, it's true. If you're not pregnant, you could be a man or you could be a not pregnant woman. That's true. But only women get pregnant. So you're regulating a logical subset of women, and that has to be understood as sex discrimination. Again, it might be constitutional, but it has to be analyzed as sex discrimination because otherwise, if you just simply say, well, it's, it's a subset of women, any other um, law could, could target any other group as long as it targeted a subset of that group and escape scrutiny. Oh, as I mentioned before, as hypotheticals, we're, we're not um, imposing burdens on blacks, only on blacks who are um, under age um, 111 or only on women who are below the, the height of, of, of seven feet six. Which, these are logical subsets of women, logical subsets of blacks, but of course you have to you know, analyze them as sex laws and, and race laws. Again, doesn't mean they're unconstitutional. But Justice Alito, if we're going to do first principles, because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and not the cases, if Roe is baloney, so is Gadaldig, why is that relevant? Oh, because you didn't really talk enough about equality, and now we're going to have to talk about equality, and in addition to unenumerated rights jurisprudence of counting, we're going to actually have to look at um, 
um, women's equality aspects of, of this. Now, again, that might not uh, prevail because it might very well be that even if we subject this law to heightened scrutiny, the fact that women's liberty is being intruded upon might be permissible because of just how compelling an interest uh, the protection of innocent, unborn human life might be. Okay, so th- th- that, that, you know, that analysis is not, um, the, the results of that analysis are not foreordained, but we're going to actually have to look at this through the perspective of not just uh, liberty and unenumerated rights and substantive due process, privileges or immunities, but also equality, and gedaldig must go. And that, that's two victories. One, it means that abortion laws are going to, um, for the future, are going to be examined through the prism of equality and not just liberty, which Roe didn't do and Casey really didn't do. So that's one thing that you're getting. You're also getting a ruling that's going to help pregnant people in areas having nothing to do with abortion. I'll just give you one. I can't think of a lot of great examples off the top of my head. Um, but, but here's an example. It's illegal right now for lawyers to ding that it's peremptorily challenge would-be jurors because they're black or because they're female. That's settled law today, and rightly so, given the 15th and 19th Amendments. Say no race discrimination in voting, no sex discrimination in voting, and, and what jurors do is vote. So I think voting jurisprudence applies very strongly to jury cases. If a lawyer today dings someone says, oh, I'm not dinging them because they're a woman, I'm dinging them because they're pregnant, um, Gedaldig would actually um, be a leg for that lawyer to stand on, but if Gedaldig is overruled, courts will rightly say, no, that's sex discrimination, that's unconstitutional, that's violative of our, our principles, and that might matter, because in, in a case that's you know, something like um, uh, Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp or whatever, if you are able to ding a lot of pregnant women, you're, you're going to be fewer women on juries, and juries matter. And as far as, you know, abortion goes, um, you know, as you say, we don't know what effect it would have on the abortion laws, but, but we do know that in the, in the opinion that Justice Alito wrote, he goes to great lengths to say that after this opinion, any restriction on abortion will be, re- will be reviewed through a rational basis scrutiny. Um, so, and, it's a, so it matters for abortion. It matters outside abortion. Our audience doesn't uh, maybe know, but last week I did the first ever interview of Justice uh, Sotomayor and Justice Barrett together. It was the first time they had done an event together. The, the court's um, third justice in history, well, female justice, excuse me, and the court's fifth female justice in history. You had O'Connor and then um, uh, RBG and, and then Sotomayor third, Kagan, fourth, and Barrett, fifth. They had never done an event together, and I, I did this um, fun interview. It hasn't been uploaded yet. I sort of played Phil Donahue and Andy Lipka, kind of, you know, asking fun questions and, uh, and interjecting my own opinions from time to time in Andy Lipka fashion. But actually, uh, we talked about juries, and Justice Sotomayor told a fun story about actually um, uh, juries and how she's administered to youngsters. Um, she's done a fun mock jury trial case where the kids were the jurors um, trying. It was the people against Goldilocks for, for burglary. And she actually talks about how, you know, the, the jurors actually were pretty, the student jurors were pretty smart. They convicted Goldilocks 
of eating the porridge because that was intentional, um, but they acquitted her for breaking the chair because that was unintentional. Um, but justice, so do my beliefs in jury service. And so what does... What the sentence? Um, <laughs> I didn't ask her that, but, but, um, and so does Justice Barrett. So I've given you an, an illustration of how the overruling of Gadaldig wouldn't just affect abortion rights, but would be a, a victory for women's rights in, in other fields as well, like jury service. And given that we're talking in part about culture war issues, this would be a victory for the libs, you see. And it might be a way, and, and if Brett Kavanaugh wants to signal that he actually has an inner feminist in him, um, he, should, he should repudiate Gadaldic um, and, 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 and show the world that, that um, he actually is um, a, a feminist of a certain sort. So I'm just talking about if you're trying to, and I'm making legal arguments here, but talking about a different kind of coalition that sees the issues at hand differently and tries to, the way you often create positive some solutions as you add new issues in. And this is not unrelated because Gadaldig was mentioned in this draft. It's key to the opinion and it's bad. It's as bad as Roe. You know, liberals don't like it. Conservatives don't like Roe. Okay, you're going to get rid of Roe. It, um, there's, it's utterly fitting and proper, altogether fitting and proper and some, you know, for us to get rid of Gadaldig at the same time. Okay. Now, of course, a knee-jerk reaction to that could be like, who cares about Gadaldig? Roe is the is is where the money is. Roe is the big one. Yeah. Gadaldig is fi- is is you fine, know, fine, but but a yeah, but, comfort, but, but I, not- and I and I should tell those folks, you know, unless you have um, five votes and you don't, I'm just trying to tell you how to do damage control, well, but in a way that's legally defensible and and right. And I'm actually trying to use this because. Look, I've always been a critic of Roe, truth be told. Um, I'm, I'm on print, in print as being a critic of Roe for more than 20 years, but I'm also deeply critical of Gadaldig. And, and so, I, yes, I want to use all of these opportunities to actually clean up the law. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be an equal trade. It's, you know, it doesn't. That's why I've been actually making trade. legal arguments and not just, you know, mm-hmm. um, right. uh, the, the, the political science sort of bargaining right. we'll um, get the to theory that. stuff that I'm going to mm-hmm. come to. Gadaldig is wrong. It's wrong the way Roe is wrong. And, and, and this is not two wrongs making a right. It's, it's actually correcting two wrongs, you know, remedying two wrongs. Um, because Roe, in my view, was n- not well reasoned, um, and neither was Gadaldig. Okay, so those are those are you know two different things: the the, the, the travel and GoFundMe um, stuff, um, and, and along with the outlier analysis about you know having enough time to decide. And let's get rid of Gadaldig. Okay. Now, of course, you just said well, Roe, you know, was wrong in his reasoning, but in fact. Uh, you, you believe that Roe may have been right on its facts. Now, is yes, that relevant gonna, to, to this? We're going to put up on the website a piece that I wrote long ago for a book that Jack Balkin edited. It's called What Roe Versus Wade Should Have Said. And in this book, he asked a whole bunch of scholars to write alternative opinions, concurring, dissenting um, about, in Roe. In his imaginary court, he played the role of chief justice. They were, ended up being 11 justices. He, uh, um, he, he had written an early, uh, edited an earlier book called What Brown versus Board of Education Should Have Said, and I think there he got nine scholars, including himself. This time he, um, he brought in 11. Three of us, basically, eight of the um, 11 liked the result. They something had different re- reasons, but they basically agreed with the role. Three, uh, two dissented. 
Um, and one, uh, and that was Jeff Rosen, before he became head of the National Constitution Center, my student Jeff Rosen, uh, Neil Katyal's brother-in-law, um, and uh, Mike Paulson, who cards on the table, was one of my, uh, was, was my law school roommate. Um, I wrote the third opinion that concurred in part and dissented in part, and, there, and all the others thought nothing, pro- no, no problem with Roe. In, um, but, um, but I said, look, I, I made all the criticisms of Roe back then that I'm making now. I'm not changing my stripes. But I said, in result, Roe itself actually was right because I believe in women's equality. Um, and the Roe Ro didn't talk about that at all. And here's the key fact on women's equality. The law at issue in Roe was passed by Texas in the 1850s before any woman voted. And I said, you can't actually restrict lim- women's liberty and equality this way in a process that no woman voted for. So at the very least, strike down this old law. If Texas passes it tomorrow in a process in which women are voting equally for men, that'll be a different situation, but strike down this old law. Um, now, what do I believe about precedent in America's unwritten constitution? In my um, uh, chapter on precedent's proper place, I say, look, sometimes even if you think that you have to take the precedent seriously, and even if you disagree with it, you have to pay attention to it, and sometimes there's going to be wisdom in um, its result, even if you disagree with its reasoning. Roe actually, on its facts, was right to invalidate this Texas law, because, to repeat, um, it didn't come from a process in which women as well as men were voting on women's bodies. Now, here's what Actually, a famous scholar said in a very famous book, this is not me and this is not my book, but a famous scholar said, most laws classifying by sex weren't passed this morning or even the day before yesterday. Um, In general, uh, um, in in fact, it's rare to see a gender-based classification enacted since the New Deal. In general, women couldn't even vote until the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. And most of these laws, probably the, the gender discrimination laws, probably predate even that. They should be invalidated. That's what the scholar said. Now, add to that my claim, pregnancy laws are sex discrimination laws. Gadulting should go. Well, then on this scholar's analysis, um, pregnancy-related laws passed before 1920 should be invalidated. If they're reenacted you know, afterward when women vote, that's different. But this scholar... A famous scholar in a very famous book is saying pre-1920 laws that are gender-based should be wiped off the books because women didn't vote. Um, and to repeat, pregnancy laws, in my view, are gender discrimination laws, logically. Who was the scholar? John Hart Ely. In his great book, Democracy and Distrust, the most a book that sold more copies than any uh, book in constitutional law of its era, um, and the book that I think may be closing in on the new record is My Own America's Constitution and Biography. Why do I mention what's so interesting about that? Because the Alito draft actually cites John Hart Ely along with Akhil Amar as liberals who critique Roe um, and say Roe was rightly decided. But John Hart Ely, you know, apparently had, for, you know, one part of John Hart Ely had forgotten about another John Hart Ely, Professor Ely, meet Professor Ely, because um, you later, after you wrote The Wages of the Crying Wolf, which Sam Alito cites, 
actually said laws passed before 1920 should be, uh, sex discriminatory laws should be invalidated. So it would be a particularly cool move of a, a Kagan opinion or something to quote um, Ely back, given the Alito draft. And again, our audience is getting kind of a Marcus constitution. My distinct take on this, this is the passage that cites an Alito's draft that cites not just Amar, but Alito, uh, Amar, but Ely. And I'm getting this idea from John Ely, even if he forgot about it at some point. So now you say, fine, Akil. How many laws are there pre-1920? I don't know. Maybe not so many. Um, um, but still, um, it's just an important point. It, it, this opinion should talk a lot more about women's equality. Um, and, and this is an important point to, to mention about women's equality. Um, now, there's a fourth point that's... Um, so the bottom line on that is that you're saying that Roe was right on the facts, um, and therefore any abortion law passed prior to 1920 should be struck down when Correct. women voted. So right. whatever, whatever abortion... Now, you might, you might say, well, abortion law passed 1920. It's, uh, abortion has been illegal in every state for 50 years, so what are you talking about, abortion laws? You know, aren't they all gone? Ah, so now let's talk about abortion laws passed between... So if we're agreed that everything before 1920 gets wiped from the statute books... What about laws passed between 1920 and 1973 when Roe came along? You could say, well, Roe struck down all the laws between 1920 and 1973. Well, it didn't quite strike them down because that's what lay people think. Lay people think it's like a present vetoing a bill. It just never materializes. But that's not what happens. When courts, quote, strike down a law, they basically mean they're not going to let it be enforced um, uh, while they're um, in charge of, of, of the court. Um, but if that precedent is overruled, that law is still on the books. It can, in certain situations, spring back to life as a general proposition. So now here's my fourth and final point about what this opinion could say. Remember, I've tried to move away from precedent, precedent, precedent. It's just following it even if it's wrong. That just seems to be mindless. I'm with Justice Thomas and saying that's a mindless mantra if you can't defend something on the merits. Say, well, we already decided that. Shut up. Um, no, defend it on the merits, damn it, because um, you have to show me how it connects to the Constitution. But here is one of the values closely related to two or two values closely related to the precedent. Okay, maybe it's wrong in what it said, but it was right in what it did. That's what we just talked about. The 1920 law, really, um, a pre-1920 law, really shouldn't be followed um, in the 20th or 21st century because women didn't vote before 1920. Second point is precedent sometimes is about reliance interests. Now, I define reliance rather narrowly, okay, Here's what some people are saying. Well, women have come to rely on Roe versus Wade. Their whole conception of, of, of their um, existence um, is defined you know, by a, a sensi- post-Roe sensibility. That proves too much because you could say, well, 50 years of, of, of whites grew up under Plessy versus Ferguson thinking that you know, they were superior in various ways. Um, and and that, that wasn't good enough um, in Brown because my claim is... Plessy unjustly enriched whites. They gave something they were never entitled to. 
And so all Brown was doing is just taking away unjust entitlement. And maybe all um, overruling Roe is doing is just undoing a right that should never have been recognized. And you're just going back to what it should have been from day one. There was no... um, But here's a different, much more narrow argument about... So I think the broad arguments about reliance prove too much they would um, undermine Brown. And remember, Alito highlighted at oral argument and in his draft opinion, Brown, as did, I think, Justice, K, uh, Justice Kavanaugh in an oral argument as well, but definitely Justice Alito did. And we highlighted that as when I, um, and, uh, in our episode um, uh, on the oral arguments when I said that was a good move that Alito made. My view of reliance, this is narrower. And by the way, um, shout out to Vic Gamar who helped me see all of this. Um, um, and so I'm, I'm getting some of this from from Vic, who, of course, has been on our podcast and will um, be on our podcast in the future talking about independent state legislature theory. Um, The idea of reliance is when a court messes up, gets something wrong, you shouldn't be worse off than you would have been had the court got it right in the first place. When it comes to white supremacy, you're not worse off. Um, Plessy gave you 50 years of unjust supremacy that you should never have had, but now it's just taking away and you're not worse off. You're just back to to baseline, status quo. Um, And maybe same with overruling Roe in general. But let's imagine now, okay, you can overrule Roe in the case at hand in Mississippi. There's a doctor who performed an abortion. He performs an abortion today or tomorrow at 16 weeks. Maybe it's medically necessary. Um, so he does it. The law in Mississippi says, oh, that's the crime in Mississippi um, after 15 weeks. But a lower court actually put that law in abeyance and stayed that law. Um, and until the Supreme Court rules, that law is on hold. And the doctor who performs the abortion is performing it in reliance on this lower court decision. And he never, let's imagine that he would have performed it had the court not told him he, he could. Now, when Roe was overruled, as it will be in this Mississippi case, going forward, he can't perform abortions at six weeks, but it would be monstrous to 16. actually prosecute him kind of ex post facto um, for an abortion that he performed in emphatic reliance on what courts were telling him. Maybe the court was wrong um, in, in following the lower court in following Roe, um, but um, that was the law at the time he, he did that, and so he shouldn't be made worse off. Okay, if you buy that argument for the doctor, here's, Vic says, what you could say about laws passed between 1920 and 1973 when Roe was handed down. There, there was a liberalizing movement um, afoot in the 1970s, um, that's what you mentioned in an earlier episode, Andy. And um, uh, some of these old laws were being repealed. Roe put an end to some of those repeals because it, it sounded as if it was striking down all those laws. So a whole bunch of people relying on Roe, you might think maybe wrongly, could, but they weren't lawyers, not technical people, that oh, well, these laws actually have been, re- in effect, repealed by the Supreme Court, so we don't need to repeal them. We are worse off if, you, if those laws spring back to life because we would have repealed them in the 1970s, um, but we didn't in reliance on Roe, so now we're worse off. Okay, that's not a preposterous argument. It's not a knockdown argument, but it's not a preposterous argument. What that would mean is that laws passed before 1973 should basically be invalidated 
a state today can re-adopt the law if it wants, um, but um, uh, it'll adopt it with its eyes open. This might make a difference in, because uh, some of the states, you know, if you told them that, they're going to re-adopt the law tomorrow, no matter what, a state like Texas or something. But for some states, it might make a difference. I think it's possible that might make a difference in states like um, Michigan, um, Wisconsin, and Arizona, to pick three. Um, so I just sketched out the broad contours of an alternative opinion. It's very legal. It focuses, just to uh, recap, first on travel plus enough time to make a decision, sort of the outlier idea, plus GoFundMes. A second idea was about um, uh, overruling Gadulding and bringing equality analysis um, um, into the framework big time. A third was, at the very least, saying Roe was right on its facts and all um, laws like Texas's law um, at, at issue in Roe, pre-woman suffrage, of course, um, are in, in, invalid. And a fourth is on reliance um, ideas, maybe even all laws between 1920 and 1973 could be subject to the same framework. Those are legal arguments for a certain kind of damage control if you are in um, if, if you see the world as Justice Kagan does and are trying to preserve to a maximum extent possible reproductive choice for women, which you constitutionally believe in. So in that world, you would have the ability to travel to another state. You would have the ability to be funded to go to the other state. Um, and you would have the right to have an abortion in basically in every state up till some early point, like maybe six weeks or something like that, which, again... That sounds terrible to many people. The six weeks? You kidding me? You know, but it does preserve. Uh, even in those states, you would be able to go to another state. If, so, if the baseline, if we're comparing it to right now, it doesn't look so good. If we're comparing it to Alito's uh, draft opinion becoming the, the the court's ruling, it's better than that. So that's what you're you're trying to offer. Especially because when you look at what happened in Oklahoma and Missouri over the last few weeks, you can see that a situation considerably worse than that will exist at least for a short time um, in those states, uh, absent such a, such a deal. Um, now, it could be that, those, that these new laws may themselves be struck down eventually, but there's, there's going to be, and the, the Oklahoma law also tries to bring in this deputizing of citizens to enhance it, to, to enforce it. Um, that's a complicating factor that we, we could talk about another time. But okay, so that's so so it, it would be a superior landscape in in a sense to that. So now when we talk about it from a negotiating point of view, um, you know who gives up what, who gets what, and why would people, why would the justices uh, in question do it? Right, from a game theoretical um, and more political point of view, you know why would is this even? I'm giving you why it's legally um, defensible. I'm giving you a legal framework. What does uh, what do the liberals give up? A lot. They surrender, and they actually are, are, are conceding that Roe um, is not defensible, and, and they're abandoning that position, and they're signaling that the, the day after Dobbs, they're not going to be reviving Roe because um, they're um, they're giving uh, pledging allegiance to a different framework. But by the way, if they say press and press and precedent, that's not going to be any good. You know, if that's all they say, you know, after Dobbs comes down, okay. But but they're they're giving. That what they're giving is also a lot of cover and legitimacy. They're consenting to a ruling in the case at hand that will be 9-0 in result. 
you know, with, with Alito um, being writing for maybe four justices saying we would go much further and five saying, well, we, we don't go that, that far, but we think Mississippi is okay. So, so they're giving up a lot and they're legitimating, they're, they're, they're creating, um, um, look, because I think no matter what the court does, it's legitimate, but a lot of people out there in the, uh, the country are enraged and what um, the liberals are, are doing is giving, you know, frankly, a lot of cover to the conservatives by saying we, we can accept this um, in, in result. So they're giving up a lot You've identified some of the things that they're getting. They're trying to maximize the, the choices still left to women. So that's what they're giving up, and that's what they're getting. Um, now, um, what are the conservatives? What, what, this is not going to be accepted, this grand bargain by um, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas. Um, what, but maybe, and, and I don't know enough about Justice Barrett, what would Robert? What would, does Roberts get from this? He holds his court together. He actually has nine zero in result ruling. He tries to show that that his court actually people sometimes of very different points of view can sometimes converge on on um, certain legal um, uh, solutions. Wow, this would be a huge accomplishment given his vision as an institutionalist of trying to to keep different wings of the court together and trying to show America that the court isn't like the other branches where liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats never come together on anything significant, it seems. Okay. Why, finally, because the key comes down to Brett Kavanaugh, might he ever do this? Oh, it takes some of the heat off of him, you know, because he's not actually the fifth vote um, uh, for all of this. He's... he's um, uh, in the middle of, of a court right next to John Roberts and flanked by institutionalists like Breyer and Kagan. This is like what his boss did in Casey, coming up with a, a, you know, a middle solution, a coalition of the middle. Is he going to buy it? Who knows? But that's what he gets from it. Now, I guess one question I would ask is, you know, you say, well, the liberals are giving up a lot. They're kind of giving their imprimatur to the notion that uh, that there is no uh, constitutional right to abortion beyond, you know, 15 weeks or whatever it might be. And we, you listed some of the things they're getting for it. But I guess my question would be is how enduring are these things that they would be getting likely to be? Um, and obviously, you never know for sure, but, you know, what would... You know, what kind of obstacles are, would this be erecting to having it being usurped um, right. in the future? So, and, and, and then I think that's the, the perfect last question because we've gone on a, a good long time. And, but what you get on this podcast, audience, is legal analysis, um, but also, you know, uh, with attention to the, the, the broader political considerations. Here's Amar's claim that cases that are rightly reasoned or even plausibly reasoned are more enduring. They're more solid. It's not the only thing that's going on. Of course, politics is important too and morality. But my claim is Brown aged well, Loving aged well, Obergefell is aging well, um, and Roe has not aged well. Why? Well, Broader cultural forces, you know, um, we're more tolerant and diverse society, immigration, all the rest, that's going to help Brown, that's going to help Loving. 
young people get it on same-sex marriage and, and they're coming of age and old people are dying. Obergefell is uh, aging well. And science is supporting Obergefell in, in certain ways, sex, um, uh, gender reassignment therapy, sex change operations, all the rest, a de-gendering um, of, of many areas of, of, of life. So there are larger forces, technological, scientific, um, moral, political, cultural, social, that help Brown, Loving, and Obergefell but it also genuinely at the margins helps that Brown was right. You know, it really does say equal and loving was right. Damn it. It really does say equal, you know, and, and, and Obergefell was right. Damn it. It really does say equal. My claim is Roe is being undermined in at least two ways. One, the ultrasound revolution is really focusing folks um, literally as never before on unborn entities. Andy, it, it was so, okay, I'm recording this podcast on the, 21st on the 21st anniversary of my twins' birth. That is their 21st birthday is today. So lots of love to Karin Sarah, and I give a big shout out and, and to Vanitha. You, you had something to do with this too. And I called my mom, and actually, she, um, um, because, because I won't go into the details, but, but for my mom, actually, it, it could have been a medical disaster. My, 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 um, we were out there in California. So, but, oh, when I saw their heartbeats, you know, um, at, at five or six weeks, um, that, uh, and when I saw you know, the heartbeat of, 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 our, of our son, that that was a pretty important moment. Um, so technological factors um, are making Roe more complicated. The, the fact that we really, we can see um, and, and hear the, the unborn. But I'm claiming, at, and, and, and I'd be a fool to think that, it's, it, you know, that, that law is the only thing that matters. There are, there are much broader religious forces and cultural forces, um, social forces, and scientific forces. But my claim is law matters as well, and at the margins, it surely does not help that Roe is, and this is a technical legal phrase, a pile of poo, you know? And truthfully, I thought so for a very, very long time. Um, when, just as a young, as a law student, a law professor, I read the opinion, I said, this doesn't actually make sense, kind of as, as law, it's just not well done. Um, so my claim is, um, a compromise is more likely to endure if it's legally solid, and I've tried to give you genuinely legal arguments for, for a framework, and then, you know, there are larger forces in the world that can destroy everything, of course, even something that's, that's well-built. But I've tried to identify a well-built alternative opinion, and it would also be more solid if this helped create bonds of trust across the ideological divide. If Kavanaugh begins to trust Kagan and vice versa, that would be a very big deal going forward. So just, uh, we, we're going to wrap up. As you say, we've gone on for a while, but, um, you know, we've gotten a lot of attention in the media, this podcast, over the, over the last few weeks, and it's possible that a lot of people may listen to this again. So why don't you just give me an executive summary of the the deal as it as you see it what are, just give me the, the the four major points that right. someone that's that you know doesn't so, have to go so through here, this whole he, thing to, right. to digest here 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 here's the lineup you know from left to right sotomayor kagan Breyer, 
Roberts, Kavanaugh. That's five. Peeling Kavanaugh away from Alito. So that's the you know bottom line. You know, um, um, and the four are going to agree in result. Mississippi's law is okay because they're going to say anything is okay, um, and the five are going to say no. Mississippi's law is okay only because of all these important limiting factors, which are, one, right of travel and right of GoFundMe, and um, on an outlier analysis, you have to have enough time um, to make a decision. Um, um, and then the debate is whether it's gonna, you're going to try to draw the line at 15 weeks or six weeks or something like that. Or somewhere in between. Yeah. Two. The dull dig must go. If we're cleaning up bad precedents, let's, okay, well, we're not going to uh, keep throwing good money af- after bad um, and, and try to defend uh, Roe. So, but if Roe doesn't make sense, and we're admitting it's, it's problematic, we on the left, Gadaldig doesn't make sense either. And that's going to have implications not just for all abortion law going forward, because it's going to bring equality analysis in front and center, um, but it's also going to have implications for a pregnancy discrimination outside the abortion context, and that's a victory for um, team equality. You know, um, uh, and this part of this is culture wars stuff, and, and now actually each side is getting something, and I say getting something right, you know. Um, third, that of course, um, that even Roe, which we're dumping on and, and, and tossing overboard, actually was right on its facts. The Texas law should, be, should have been tossed out because no, it, it regulated women and no woman ever voted for it. And fourth, maybe because Roe intervened, it made certain folks worse off. The reformists were worse off. The wind was taken out of their sails. So they may have failed to formally repeal certain laws that they thought were being struck down. And so let's actually invalidate all the laws pre-1973. Um, and if states want to readopt them tomorrow, okay, as long as they uh, fit the, the, the framework of especially points one and two. Okay, so there you have it. So we don't know that this will happen, but... Uh, don't hold your breath yeah. at all. But what you get on a Marcus Constitution is serious legal analysis. And I, and I defended the Alito opinion as, as perfectly coherent. My biggest criticism in the Wall Street Journal and in the podcast is it didn't take the equality analysis seriously. And now I've tried to, to offer an alternative vision of kind of approach that, that might try to take that more seriously. Okay. Until next week. Thank you.